Dr. Luis Sandoval is accomplished in the fields of mental health and spiritual warfare. A medical doctor, board certified in neurology, psychiatry, and family medicine, he is also a psychiatrist for the Roman Catholic Diocese of Orange, Ministry of Healing and Deliverance. Now, Dr. Luis Sandoval. All right, folks, well, welcome to Virgin Most Powerful Radio. You're listening to the Dr. Sandoval Show. As always, glad to be here as your host. You know, interesting uh, show for today. I came across this article. It's kind of interesting. Uh, lots of people, obviously, I do therapy. I talk to many, many different people. I talk to all different kinds of people. Some of my patients are pretty intense. Uh, they have had histories where they have long time uh, criminal histories and uh, due to their mental illness sometimes is what drives them to break the law in such an with such intensity ferocity you know you see a lot of specials on tv sometimes of people who who have uh, uh, broken the law and have really made a name for themselves by gruesome acts of criminal activity and it's intriguing to study the criminal mind to see the criminal mind but is that something that we have to worry about on a daily basis? Is that something that we as Catholics uh, or anybody in the world really uh, has to be concerned with? The reason this came up is because one of my patients recently uh, was asking me that. They said, gosh, you know, Dr. Sandoval, I really got into a lot of these TV specials, a lot of different shows where they do show people with criminal minds, criminal mental illness. Uh, there is a show actually called Criminal Minds. Uh, that's pretty intriguing, you know, how true to life it is with the statistics and things like that. Eh, good enough for the show, I guess. But this person was really, really worried because they had gotten so involved in watching these shows that they started to wonder, what's keeping me from doing that? In other words, themselves, what was keeping them from one day going from having Depression and anxiety. They had pretty much basic depression and anxiety. This is a, a young man in his 30s. Was treating him with basic medication and asked these questions of what's the difference between me and them at this point in my life? Well, it's an interesting question to ask, but as we get started here on the show, why don't we start off with a prayer uh, so that we can tackle such an intense uh, topic? Because it's not an easy topic to consider. So let's start with the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou amongst women and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners now and at the hour of our death. Amen. Glory be to the Father and to the Son and to the Holy Spirit as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen. And St. Michael, the archangel, defend us in battle. Be our protection against the wickedness and snares of the devil. May God rebuke him, we humbly pray. And do thou, Prince of the Heavenly Host, by the power of God, cast into hell Satan and all the evil spirits who prowl around the world, seeking the ruin of souls. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, the criminal mind, folks, it's very interesting because... A lot of times when we have to get to uh, court hearings as a, as a forensic uh, psychiatrist or a doctor who works with forensic medicine, we deal with the law all the time. That's really what forensic psychiatry is. It's when you deal with uh, the law and medicine and the, men, the human mind. <clears throat> well, this patient asked me some intriguing questions and they said, 
what's the difference between me and these people who are criminals, who have committed heinous crimes? We don't have to get into the details of the crimes, but I'm sure that anybody who's listening has seen news articles, pick up the news today, and you can see somebody who's on trial or suspected of something that's just awful, whether it be murder or uh, assault or you know theft, any of these things that we see that we deal with in society. How do we address that? How do we make account make an account for that? And especially if somebody is suffering from mental illness, uh, whether it be basic depression, anxiety, or something more serious, you could be dealing with a psychosis, schizophrenia, bipolar disorder, any of these things, what is keeping them from breaking the law or not being in the right mind? You know, these are really, really good questions. So the first thing I told my patient was this, for the average person, we all go through ups and downs. There's no question about that. And if we start focusing on the news a lot, I always recommend to my patients, don't read the news more than 10 minutes a day, more than 15 minutes a day. Read the headlines. You'll see that they're pretty much the same day after day. Uh, every once in a while, you'll get a new one, of course. And once that news breaks, if it's intriguing, it's going to stay on the headlines for some time. But, you know, it kind of rehashes the human mind. And the human mind was really not made to be exposed to the news that we're exposed to 24 hours a day, seven days a week. I still remember the first time that there was any kind of a news channel that decided to um, show the news 24 hours a day. It was on, on cable. And I believe it was during the uh, war with Kuwait uh, back in 1991, I want to say, somewhere around there, 91, 92. Uh, and I believe it was CNN that decided you know what, we're just going to keep showing the news and see what's going to happen. Before that, it was the five o'clock news, the six o'clock news. There was a break and they have 10 o'clock, 11 o'clock. There were certain times a day when the news was um, shown. And then other times of the day, it was TV shows, or I still remember coming home as a young kid and there were cartoons, uh, different things like that, that were always intriguing. Nowadays, we sure get a lot of news coverage. And if you really want, you can see the news 24 hours a day. The hard part with this, and this is one of the things I was telling my patient, because he said that, you know, he was really intrigued by watching specials on TVs and movies. Um, and he actually started to follow uh, all the different things that occurred in the news in real life, not just the movies about people who have done crimes in the past. And it's almost like a docu-series. He actually started watching, hey, this is what's going on with this uh, person right now. And not just following it. Some, sometimes, you know, we'll read it. Um, we'll see the the news uh, cast and we'll want to say, oh, that was interesting. What's going on there? No, he was actually doing research, uh, a deep dive on anything that came up in the news. So really started getting an unhealthy fascination with uh, criminal activity, with criminal law, uh, usually with a mental health bent which understandably so, then it makes one ask, well, what does that mean? Does, you know, this person, you start looking at their history, you know, gosh, maybe they started with a history of trauma in their youth. Maybe they suffered from depression. Maybe they suffered from anxiety. Maybe they started doing drugs and started suffering from psychosis. What's the difference? And that's a good question. It's actually a, a pretty fair question. What separates us from that? So the first thing I told them was, ease up on the news. And that's what I would tell all my listeners. You know, it's important to read the headlines, see what they say, take them with a grain of salt sometimes, because even lately the, the headlines uh, regarding the news of what's going on in the Catholic Church, some are accurate, some are not. And we really kind of have to see what's worth our time. But when it comes to criminal activity, 
a lot of violence, a lot of blood. I know that sometimes in the news world, the, the media, they want to get viewership. And they always say, if it bleeds, it leads. And that's an interesting uh, philosophy. It's an interesting way to do business. But they also know that how the human mind works. And they know that we're going to be very intrigued with anything that's traumatic. So I told my patient, slow down. Don't watch these things because every two seconds, the brain is flooded with images of trauma. And that's traumatic for us. We don't need to be seeing that all the time. We need moments of peace. Even if we read the Bible, we read the Gospels, or we read anything within the sacred scriptures, there are moments of violence. But it's interspersed with moments of hope, words of uh, inspiration and wisdom. And we can always find something inspiring in, in the uh, Gospels. It's rare to find something that's truly inspiring in the news cycle, because once in a while they'll show how a puppy was saved, or they'll have a feel-good story, as they call it but not enough to counterbalance that which we're being exposed to. So his next question was, what makes him different from these people? I guess the real question from that, or the real answer to that question is choice, you know, and severity of mental illness. So we cannot compare if anybody out there is suffering from depression or anxiety, um, Generally speaking, you know, about 25% of the population, 20, 20 to 25% of the population, depending where you are, is usually suffering from some kind of mental illness, depression, anxiety being the most common, depression being number two. But that tells you that there's a whole lot of people out there suffering from mental illness. So what we describe as mental illness, we can say depression, anxiety. Are they being treated? Are they not being treated? Eh, that depends. You know, we get our statistics from people who actually go and seek treatment. So there might be more people out there uh, who might be feeling this way. Uh, and whether or not they're getting treatment can make a difference. One of the things I was telling my patient is that he has a very supportive family and a very supportive structure. So that's a huge bonus in keeping somebody from trying to do anything um, that's going to harm people, that's going to lead down that path of scary criminality, of ending up in the jail system, in the legal system, and needing a psychiatrist to be an expert witness based on your actions. That's what we do in forensics. Um, we have some intriguing cases where we actually do have to go and be a witness and say, what was the state of the person's mind? So for the most part, the majority of people who are suffering from mental illness are not going to go commit criminal acts because of it. Things that are helpful, though, are seeking out treatment. I told him you're already seeking treatment. You're taking medication. You feel like it's working for you. That's the first part. That's that's the bonus. Two is making sure you have a good support system. If you already have a family uh, support system, for us as Catholics, a great support system would be a church group or somebody where somewhere where we feel included and we're feeling like we're doing something with a purpose. We feel like we're following God's will for us. We feel like we're deepening our spiritual lives, things of that nature. These are very, very important things to have. Um, if you are suffering from mental illness and you don't have a support group yet, it's important to find one. The other thing I told him was, it's just as important to find a support group or somebody to talk to or somebody who's going to support you as it is to make sure that, very importantly, you don't share parts of your personal life with just anybody. And that's an important point to make. And we're going to talk more about that when we come back from the break, because that can make a huge difference in somebody's mental well-being. More after the break.
All right, folks. Well, welcome back to Breaking Most Powerful Radio. You're listening to the Dr. Sandoval Show. Today, we're talking about mental illness. But really, the question about mental illness is, you know, we talk about it all the time on our show. It's, it's what it's based out of. Welcome to the clinic, right? Um, but the real question is an intriguing one that this patient asked me. What's keeping me from becoming criminally insane? What's keeping me from my mental illness driving me to commit acts that I'm not in control of. You know, almost sounds, of course, if you work with deliverance, well, what's the difference between that and demonic possession? How do I know that I'm not demonically possessed? Well, not everything's a demonic possession. And today we're going to focus a lot more on the psychiatric treatment of mental illness. Um, and we are going to talk about spirituality, uh, but not directly in, in relation to possession, because Honestly, the majority, I've never met a possessed person come to therapy. Um, the majority of people who come to therapy are everybody, you know, your average person who needs help and is just kind of going through some stuff, and it's not that big a deal. Why do I say that? It's not that big a deal. It is to the person going through it. It is to me as your psychiatrist a big deal because I want to make sure you feel good. I want to make sure I give you the right medication. I want to make sure that you understand um, the dynamic of what's going on in the world. What I mean by it's not that big a deal is you want to be careful who you share it with. A lot of times we feel like, gosh, if I'm going through something uh, intense, if I'm going through some depression, if I'm going through some anxiety, I kind of want people around me to know. Um, I want them to understand what I'm going through. I want them to um, not feel sorry for me, but have an understanding that if I'm having an off day, uh, then I think they'll be much more sympathetic. Uh, to me. And that's not always the case. Believe it or not, unfortunately, there is still a lot of stigma with uh, mental illness, with depressions, anxieties, telling anybody that you need to take medication for it or you're in treatment for it. Be cautious of who you speak to. You want to make sure that anybody you share this with, uh, one, what's the goal? You know, is the goal to make sure that they're sympathetic? Well, you know, it depends on the person. Is the goal to hopefully help them understand mental illness a little bit more? It depends on the person. I think I say that because a lot of times I've had a lot of patients come and say, you know, yeah, my coworkers found out about this and now they're they're shutting me. They don't ask me out to lunch anymore. They're treating me differently. They're pushing me off to the side. And I feel so isolated now. Now I feel like there's something wrong with me. And I'm taking my medication every day. I'm feeling pretty good. But they found out, you know, last couple of weeks I had a bad spell. I wasn't feeling too good. Remember, you adjusted my medication, Dr. Sandoval. Now I'm feeling better. Now I'm feeling like myself. But, you know, I can't take it back that I told them that. And they're looking at me differently. I feel like an outsider. I just don't feel good about that. So I tell them, be cautious. Be cautious who you share this with. Because not everybody out there um, is in a good place either. And I sympathize with them because some people are going through their own issues. Um, and a lot of people, sadly, uh, I've seen this in the workplace. I've seen this with colleagues. They actually find joy when somebody else is not doing well. It's an, an unfortunate part of the world we live in, you know, where people get more satisfaction from seeing somebody else suffer than from bringing people up or trying to find ways to make them feel better. So be cautious of that. Be cautious of who you speak to. These are things that are, are helpful in order for somebody who is going through mental illness to feel supported. Um, <clears throat> what about family members? I would use the same caution. A lot of times we feel like I need to let my family members know uh, because they're so close to me and even the closest of family members. Well, I can tell you that that can be different. It can be a different experience 
based on our cultural background. One of the things that happens in the Hispanic families, and I know this too of uh, some of my Asian American uh, patients, is they would rather not share this information or talk about mental illness because culturally it's not accepted. I had a patient who was from Latin America and she was doing really well on her medication. She had some anxiety, but we put her on a on a first-line treatment, low dose. She was doing really, really well. Her anxiety was gone. And I told her at that point, think of it as a vitamin. Don't even worry about it. Well, she felt the need, like she had to talk to her family about this. And she, and she told her uh, family what she was doing. And all of a sudden, um, she said that, you know, she came back to see me and she wasn't doing quite as well. And I asked her why. And she said she stopped her medication. I said, why? She said, because when I told my family, they all got mad at me. They told me that the medication was addictive, that it was bad for me, and I needed to stop it. And pretty much they shunned me and they kept telling me that I needed to stop it, that there was something wrong with me, and I needed to just be stronger in my head and be stronger in my spiritual life. And I thought, you know, okay. So I understand that culturally. I understand that that's what they're going to tell you. But then I told her, let's take a step back and look at how you were feeling. Were you feeling better when you were on the medication? And she said, yeah, absolutely. I was doing so well. Uh, I said, so then why did you choose to stop? She said, because they were, you know, hounding me for it. I said, you know, with all due respect to your family, and this is not disrespectful at all, go ahead and start the medication again, but just don't tell anybody. They don't need to know what you're taking. They, you know, nobody would say anything if you were taking high blood pressure medication. But of course, if it comes to depression or anxiety, there's a whole different feel to it. There's a whole, there's that stigma that something is wrong with you and we're not sure what it is. And culturally, it can be a big deal. So keep that in mind. Um, you don't necessarily have to share this with everybody so long as you're doing well. Now, what if you come across somebody who is also experiencing some depression or anxiety? That might be a good time, depending on the situation, to share with them that medication has helped you or therapy has helped you uh, and that, you know, it's something worth looking into and that it's not so bad. Um, one of the interesting things to consider, though, is how is this going to affect me? Because a lot of people worry about the side effects from the medication. And there's an idea actually culturally that if you take this medication, you will become psychotic. And that's not the case. It wouldn't make sense for a doctor to prescribe you a medication that's going to worsen your mental illness. Now, is that to say that every single medication is the right medication for you? Not necessarily. Sometimes it's a little bit of a trial and error. You need to try one or two before you realize, okay, I found the one that worked for me. But once one of them works for you, usually, usually it can work for two, three years before any changes happen in terms of the medication might stop working or whatnot. But during that time, you feel pretty good. Some people take the medication. It works for them their whole life, which is great. But we've got to get back to that question of what's separating me from just kind of losing it mentally and committing a crime. So I said, like I said before, one, recognizing that if we have a mental illness, it's okay. That's a huge step towards not committing a crime or to not going off in a direction that we're not in control of our own minds. You'll notice that even if you look at the specials of, of criminal um, minds of people who have committed uh, uh, heinous crimes due to their mental illness or, uh, you know, their antisocial, sociopaths, anything along those lines, the first thing is usually they're pretty isolated. You know, they're pretty isolated. Two, they don't necessarily believe that they have a mental illness and they don't have a support system that would tell them otherwise. They don't reach out for help. They start to isolate themselves. So if you start noticing that you're isolating yourself and you're not talking to anybody, that's a good sign that you might be starting to get depressed. But it's also a good sign that, gosh, maybe I need to talk to somebody. 
if you do notice a family member who's doing that, um, especially if it's say a young man in his early 20s, late teens, early 20s, or a female in her late 20s, maybe early 30s, and they're starting to isolate, then you start to worry a little bit more about psychosis. Is this person hearing voices or not? Are they starting to get delusional? Are they disorganizing their behavior? Are they just hanging out in the room and not showering, not talking to anybody? Um, these are things that you definitely want to look out for because if that's not treated, that's where you start to worry about where is this mind going? Now, my patient, again, basic depression, basic anxiety. I don't anticipate that that mental illness would drive him to commit a crime. But if somebody starts to hear voices, if somebody starts heading in that direction, and this is what I told him, if you ever start to hear that, I need you to be honest with me. And it depends on the kind of voices that you hear, obviously. But the ones that we really worry about, which hands down, I can tell you with all the people who I deal with who have been in prison uh, or are currently in prison and what got them there, what got them there as far as their crimes, a great number of them is drug-induced. You know, a lot of times people will want to experiment, especially with methamphetamine. And methamphetamine right away, one use can render somebody psychotic for the rest of their life. Some people will use it and it won't affect them in that way. But methamphetamine is a pretty solid uh, drug in terms of a correlation with the use of methamphetamine and psychosis. There's also been studies that even marijuana can cause uh, psychosis. So that's something to consider. This is where sometimes the question of, well, is it a sin to do drugs? Is it is a sin to do things in excess. I would say if you know that the use of uh, a particular drug, a particular substance is not going to be of benefit to your health and it can potentially cause severe mental illness, then yeah, you need to ask yourself, is this something God would want me to do? Is this something that's going to bring me closer to God? Now, People start to have these arguments, and we don't need to go into the details of this. This would be a talk for a different day of, is it a sin to drink alcohol? Is it a sin to smoke tobacco or cigarettes or things along those lines? That's a, a talk for a different day. But for today, the question of what's going to make me go past that line and go into uh, criminal activity with uh, mental illness, definitely the use of methamphetamine, uh, any hard drugs kind of head in that direction for a couple different reasons. Methamphetamine in and of itself, it can cause psychosis. So it looks very similar to schizophrenia. When I was working in the emergency departments, if somebody came in and they were hearing voices, seeing things, but they also tested positive for methamphetamine, we had to wait till the next day to figure out, are they still psychotic or not? We still treated them with medication, but then the next morning we had to figure out, hey, is this uh, you know drug related and the drugs got out of the system and you're okay? Is this, you, do you have schizophrenia before and you start using drugs anyway and that enhanced your symptoms? Or did the use of drugs now cause permanent schizophrenia, permanent auditory hallucinations? That can happen. So this is another thing that I was telling uh, my patient is stay away from drugs. That's another way to ensure that I'm not going to be headed in the criminal uh, path because I can tell you that a good number of patients that we see in the jail system and the state hospital system, lots of history of methamphetamine abuse, cocaine abuse, heroin, things along those lines. Now, even if, let's say that the drugs don't make you have mental illness, let's say that you were using something like cocaine and you say, gosh, I never, uh, you know, I'm, I'm not psychotic anymore. Yeah, when I was using the drug, I did some things that I don't remember because of where my brain was at. So already right there, that's causing you to act in a particular way. But keep in mind that the activity surrounding 
the acquisition, the selling, the business of the drug trade, that's illegal. And so that can get you involved with the law. Uh, once you get involved with the law, if you get arrested, you go to jail, can that contribute to uh, further mental illness? Sure, it can, because if you're already suffering from something and now you're in a high stress situation, that can be very, very, very challenging. So it's something to consider when it comes to drug use. I say stay away from it, especially let's say this. Now, my patient, he had a history of anxiety and depression, again, basic. He also there was a history of schizophrenia in his family. And so one of the things I told him was not just to stay away from the methamphetamine and things like that, because he told me, of course, Dr. Tim, I'm not going to be doing those hard drugs. I said, yeah, but guess what? You want to stay from marijuana, away from marijuana too. And he said, what are you talking about? I said, yeah, you know, marijuana has been shown to lead to psychosis. And he said, really? But, you know, my friends, some of my friends do it. I was thinking about maybe getting into it. I said, no, you know, you've heard of people who say, you know, I, I do marijuana and I feel calm. But then you hear other people who say, oh, yeah, you know, I smoke marijuana and I feel paranoid. Now, I'll be honest with you, perfect, personally, myself, never tried it, don't know what the effect would be. Um, and so I can't tell you from firsthand experience what that's like. But some people say that they use it and they get very paranoid. And I have had some patients who say, yeah, once I use it, I start seeing things. My friends tell me I imagine that, you know, there's things going on across the street and uh, I haven't really heard voices, but I'm not thinking clearly. The use of drugs like that can definitely lead to mental illness and criminal activity at that time, especially if you already have a pre-history uh, to it, genetically or otherwise. We're going to talk more about this when we get back from the break. All right, folks, welcome back to Virgin Most Powerful Radio. Today, we're talking about can my mental illness lead me to criminal activity? And the answer is maybe if we let it. But I think if nothing else, we can think of this as, you know, being Catholic. Can, you know, my desires of this world lead me to sin? Maybe, you know, depending on how badly we've convinced ourselves what is sin, what isn't sin, uh, things along those lines. If we decide for ourselves that this is, you know, I know better than God, can I be led to sin and therefore commit spiritual criminal activity, if you will? Um, yeah, absolutely, because I've made up my mind in certain ways. But usually that's, uh, you know, with a clear mind, with a decisive choice. With mental illness, it's a little bit different, or I should say a lot different, as I was telling my patient. You got to be careful because one of the things that we look for is, the person's been on drugs, or they're suffering from a true mental illness, are they truly responsible for their choices? And that's really what he and I were talking about. If you're thinking clearly, you know, the law looks at that. Uh, a lot of times when people get arrested and they get through the criminal trial and they go to court, one of the things to consider is, uh, are they able to go through the court hearing or are they impeded because of their mental illness? Sometimes that happens. So, one thing to consider is they come to the hospital and they say, you know, this patient is not competent right now. They're not competent to stand trial. They're incompetent to stand trial. Why? Because they're not even thinking clearly. I can tell by either, you know, they're here in the jail, they're trying to talk to their lawyer. They don't even know who their lawyer is. They don't know what's going on in the court system. They don't even recognize that what they did was right or wrong. Why don't they go to the hospital and get treated and see where they're at? Okay, they get treated. Let's say that they clear and we say, oh, gosh. You know, it was all because of drug use. And this is where I tell my patient, don't do any drugs. Don't do any street drugs. Don't do anything that you 
that might even um, cause problems with your mental health because it's not going to make you think clearly. So let's say that we have somebody here in the hospital and we think, yeah, let's treat them. Let's get their mind clear. And we do get their mind clear and we start talking to them. Then we got to ask ourselves if at the time of the crime, they knew the difference between right and wrong. Okay, so this is an interesting, I think very intriguing question to ask because it brings up a lot of issues in society. You know, when a lot of people argue that there is no truth, there is no right, there is no wrong. Um, you know, there's your truth, there's your story to tell. Even the law here recognizes, as I send somebody to uh, court, they have to evaluate and recognize at the time of the crime, did they know the difference between right and wrong? The law itself tells us that there is a right and there is a wrong, whether we like it or not. And that's what we're being judged by. Otherwise, there would be no criminal justice system. The criminal justice system itself tells us that there is a right and there is a wrong. So that's one of the interesting things I was telling them. You're not necessarily going to get to that level. And then I shared with them this story. I said, I said, you know, you're when you come to me in a in a normal in, in a clinic here, in a community clinic where you know, people are working and they have their insurance and they come in and they're treated and, and we talk to them and we give them medication and we hope that they get better. It's always a good thing. Um, but there's a big difference between that and once you get into the criminal system. And I shared with the story and I said, let me explain to you a little bit about what drugs can do and what mental illness can do. And more importantly, if you don't have a good support system, if you don't have a good uh, sense of hope, if you don't have people around you who lift you up, you better find that. Because if you start feeling lonely, if you start feeling hopeless, if you start feeling like nothing matters, then we get into dangerous territory, very dangerous territory. I had a patient, and I'll share this story, you know, not revealing any information, obviously, but this was a patient who was in his early 30s, and he had gone to jail. And we looked at, you know, his history, why he had gone to jail. And one of the things that had happened to him was he was, had a history of using methamphetamine. And he used methamphetamine. He said on occasion, the story is that he used a little bit more often than he uh, admitted to. Um, but one of the things that happened is he started to imagine that his girlfriend, he had a girlfriend, uh, that his girlfriend was having an affair and that she was having an affair with the neighbor. And this was not the case. It was not true. The girlfriend hardly knew their neighbor. They actually lived in apartments. So it was one of the other people who lived in the apartment complex. And she said, you know, when we talked to her about what was going on, she said, you know, I've, I've seen that neighbor. I know who he's talking about. We passed by a lot of people who live in the apartment complex. She said, but I've never actually talked to him other than say hi in the mornings if we go past each other. And she said, that's maybe like twice, three times a month. She said, I've never talked to this guy. She was going to break up with him at this point because he was in jail, uh, her boyfriend, and, you know, he had committed some crimes. What he did was he got to the point, because he was using methamphetamine, that he decided that he was going to go over and beat up the neighbor. He took a baseball bat and beat this neighbor silly. The neighbors who were listening called the police. The police were able to come in, in time. And the victim did not die or anything like that. He did, however, end up going to the hospital. It was pretty intense. I mean, obviously, this the, the patient the, who ended up going to jail, the rather large person, and he was a scary guy to uh, listen to, to, to be around. He had an intensity about his eyes. So <clears throat> by the time I saw him, he was no longer on the methamphetamine. But as we were talking to him, I saw him with the treatment team. We were talking to him and we realized something very, very interesting. He did not present right away with 
psychosis, even though we we drew that out of it. Sometimes right away, somebody can seem very straightforward and to have very rational mind. But the more you talk to them, you start to realize there's something going on here. There's something not right. And I just kind of got to figure it out. That's part of my job as a psychiatrist, to continue the conversation, to ask the right questions. Well, it turned out that this person was not only delusional, but the delusions of his girlfriend having an affair, probably due to the uh, drug use, but there was something underlying there. And what was underlying as we talked to him more was that he was actually sociopathic. He actually had a sociopathic uh, mindset. So was, the diagnosis would be antisocial personality disorder. And how did this manifest? How did we know? Because as we were talking to him first, we asked him what happened, and he was very straightforward about it, very calm. You could tell this guy's heart rate did not even raise as he was explaining what he did to the neighbor. He told us step by step, yep, I took the bat and I walked over there. And this was just kind of like him saying, yeah, you know, I went over there and just asked him for a cup of coffee or something. He said, I walked over there and I explained to him the situation that I did not appreciate that he was talking to my girlfriend. I believe they were having an affair. And so, you know, I decided to hit him and that's what I did. And so when we asked him now at this point, keep in mind, he's no longer on the drugs. We asked him about the drugs and he said, you know, the amount of methamphetamine in my system was probably minimal at that point. He said, I don't attribute the drugs to my actions. And we were thinking, well, I, I would attribute that a lot to your actions. It probably gave him the impetus to walk over there. And then he said, uh, you know, I believe that I am morally justified in what I did. That got kind of the hairs on the back of our neck standing up a little bit as he explained that he said you know there was nothing it's what i needed to do it was the right thing to do that's where you know that the person's sociopathic he had no empathy for the victim he had no sense of remorse he had no sense that what he did was wrong you know even if he were to be shown pictures of the resulting trauma or anything like that he would in his mind say that that's what he needed to do that there was nothing wrong about it this is where I was telling my patient, for the majority of people, we have a conscience. We have a sense of right or wrong, even if we don't want to admit it. Even if in the moment we want to say, no, you know, gosh, what I did was right because of this and that. And we do that a lot of times when we go to confession, right? We go to confession and we say, you know, I committed this and it was because. Had my neighbor not said this, had my sister not gotten upset, had my wife not, you know, done whatever, I wouldn't have sinned in this way or that way. We like to make excuses for ourselves. But the reason we're making those excuses is because we know that there's a sense of right and wrong. We know that we're trying to justify what we did that was wrong. In this particular case, he wasn't trying to justify anything. He was just saying that he was morally right to do it and that he was correct about doing it. And that was it. You know, this was the, this was the right thing for him to do. And given the chance, he would do it again, even if he had to go to jail. At that point, you know that this is a very, very dangerous individual because there's nothing holding him back to perpetuating evil, to creating evil, to committing evil, to hurting somebody for no reason. I think that that is where if somebody asks themselves, like my patient was asking, what's the difference between me and these people who are committing crimes is a couple things. One, do you have a support system out there? This patient, this patient who I saw who committed this crime, he really had no support system. He had been lifelong, uh, he, he had no dad, and we got a hold of his mom and the mom said that she was afraid of him for his whole life because he was likely antisocial as a little kid uh you know he was committing crimes as a kid he didn't care to him it was just kind of you know another thing 
you know, sometimes we don't know why people are born that way. Had he had that support system from his dad, you know, it becomes a question of nature versus nurture. Don't know if that would have made a difference for him in particular because he was so hardened in his heart about, you know, what he committed and knowing that he could go out there and he was going to do the same thing again and he was not going to care. That was pretty scary to us. That was something that we said, hey, we, you know, we cannot justify this man being out on the street just yet because he's got to go back to the court system. And it tells us at a certain point, can we, well, the question that the lawyer, so he's going to have a defense lawyer and his defense lawyer was going to say, you know, maybe he can't distinguish from right from wrong because he doesn't have empathy. He doesn't have that part of his brain, of his heart that can make that distinction. Maybe he just doesn't make that distinction. So therefore he can't be held liable for his actions. You know, it's one of these things that we say, that would be true only if we did not have a standard of right and wrong. At some point, what he did was wrong. Can he distinguish it if he verbalizes it enough? Now, I'm not his lawyer, and I didn't follow his trial because we treated him. Uh, and then he went he went back to the jail system. You know, we gave him some medication to calm him down a little bit. Uh, he was having those delusions, remember, that the neighbor and his girlfriend were uh, having an affair, which was not the case. And this was confirmed all around. Uh, and, you know, so he did have a history of delusions, but the fact that, you know, even people with delusions will have a sense of right or wrong. He could not really function in the unit. Everything he was doing was very calculated. He showed that, you know, he would manipulate the other uh, patients who were on the unit. He would talk to the staff and split the staff. It was all part of the sociopathic criminal mind. He was trying to gain something uh, for himself, and he was actually, you could see him enjoying causing chaos. You know, if you compare this to the deliverance world, it's kind of like if you ever follow Father Chad Ripperger uh, and you follow his talks, what he says when somebody becomes psychologically compatible with evil, meaning that that's how they think, that's what they want. Is that going to happen to somebody with mental illness all the time? More than likely not. Very unique cases in patient. That's why I want to make sure to know. We come back for the break and go through an article that helps us out to think, how can I think about my mental illness, even if it doesn't lead to criminal activity? All right, folks, well, welcome to Virgin Mouse Powerful Radio. You're listening to the Dr. Sandoval Show. Today we're asking the question, how is my mental illness different from that of somebody who's got criminal mental illness, somebody who's willing to break the law and do some very dangerous, damaging things, including assaulting people, murdering, things along those lines, is my mental illness going to get to that stage? And the great resounding answer for the majority of people is no, absolutely not. You know, there are lots of people who live with mental illness, and we are actually in good company in the world of mental illness, in the world of therapy, in the world of psychiatry, if we consider that some of the saints themselves live with mental illness. I don't want anybody to worry that because they might be suffering from depression or anxiety, or even know somebody who's suffering from psychosis or bipolar disorder, that they're going to become a criminal. That's not necessarily the case. And especially with good support, with the idea that we can go to treatment and get medication, you know, these are all important things to consider. And this is what I always tell my patients. I found this interesting article because this is the last thing that I shared with my patient who asked me that question. I said to him, you know, it's easy to go down the rabbit hole of being really scared and seeing all these people with mental illness who did some heinous crimes, who ended up in uh, the prison system and the court system and, you know, the legal system and um, all due to their mental illness. What's keeping anybody from doing that? 
But one, God's grace. Two, a good support system. Three, not losing hope. I would dare say practicing the Catholic faith, prayer, mental illness at all. I'm sorry, prayer helps mental illness. It brings peace to the mind. Um, going to the sacraments, receiving the sacrament of confession that gives us hope and continuing to understand that it still loves us. That's the bottom line, that there's nothing that's going to keep us from the love of God, even if the person suffers from mental illness. Now, this article that I found, I thought was very, very appropriate uh, as I was talking to my patient, because I thought to him, I was thinking, how do I convince him that, you know, that it's okay, that it's okay to be Catholic and suffer from mental illness if that's what you are experiencing? And this article is titled, Some Saints Lived With Mental Illness. And it says this, did any of the saints live with mental illness? Yes. Most certainly some of them did. They were human. Mental illness has always been a part of the human condition. Saints lived with every kind of illness, and those who live with mental illness can give hope to the millions of people who live with mental illness today. And this is absolutely true. I thought this was a great article to consider, you know, because a lot of times when people do suffer from mental illness, um, not everybody's so worried about the extreme of, am I going to uh, end up with mental illness that's so intense that I commit crimes or that I don't know uh, what's going on, I'm not in my right mind. I think the majority of people, though, feel very isolated, feel very alone, and they feel almost like there's uh, some kind of a disfigurement, uh, not physical, but mental. Uh, there's some kind of a mental handicap, some kind of a, that they are disabled. And that's not necessarily the case. You know, the idea is that just because somebody is suffering from mental illness does not mean that they are excluded. And more importantly, the most important thing to think about, I would say, you're not excluded from the world of God's love. That's the key. That's the key at the end of the day, because what does it matter what the world thinks of me if God thinks I'm okay? And so it's important to consider, gosh, some of the people who were elevated to sainthood may have suffered from mental illness as well. So let's see what else the article has to say. So by suggesting that some saints live with a mental illness does not diminish their legacy. And this is the key point. Just because somebody suffers from mental illness has nothing to do with who they are as a person themselves or what they mean uh, to God or to the world in God's eyes. To believe that to believe that would only perpetuate the stigma and discrimination that people who live with mental illness must endure. It would interfere that it would interfere with their living um, and with the idea that it makes a person less than worthy of God's grace. So if somebody suffers from mental illness, a lot of times it's very common. A lot of people feel that they don't deserve God's grace, that they're not worthy of it, that there's something wrong with them. And it's easy to forget that we are all made in God's image and likeness, regardless of our physical state and regardless of our mental condition. So that's one of the things that I'll be honest with you, a lot of psychiatrists struggle with um, that we have to struggle through, especially if we are treating somebody who has a history of a criminal past uh, that might have been due to their mental illness, especially let's say that you're treating somebody with a criminal past who's been abusive to children or, you know, things of that nature, you know, the society is very quick to say, hey, these people have to go. They've got to give them the chair, kill them, do something. They're evil. Everything's really, really bad. But as a psychiatrist, when you treat them, you have to take that step back and realize they're still made in the image and likeness of God. And if what Jesus says is true, which it is, I'm not going to doubt, um, is that his mercy is for everyone, no matter how heinous the crime. Something to consider. Let's see what else the article has to say. It says, the reality is that people who live with mental illness can have deep and profound insights into suffering, very true, and the mercy of God. God's grace is not limited by any condition, including mental illness. 
People who live with a mental illness can be especially close to God and live holy lives. That's something to consider. You know, we see that in, in the deliverance ministry. A lot of people ask if somebody is influenced by the devil, somebody says the ex extreme level of possessed by a demon, uh, does that mean that they're going to go to hell? And it has nothing to do with that. If you listen to Father Chad Ripperger again, he'll tell you, you know, a lot of people who are fully possessed uh, are very, very holy people. Two separate things. I say the same thing with mental illness. If somebody is suffering from mental illness, if somebody's being oppressed with depression or anxiety or things along those lines, has nothing to do with how close or far they are from God, because at the end of the day, that still has to do with whether they're committing sins or not that they might be responsible for. So that's true of anybody, really. Uh, and anybody with mental illness is no different. You're still in the grace of God. It doesn't mean that you're not going to go receive communion so long as you are not in a state of moral sin. It doesn't mean that you cannot go into heaven. It's just another condition. And this is truly where we got to see mental illness as a medical condition, just like saying diabetes, high blood pressure. None of those are going to keep you from the kingdom of God. So let's see what else the article has to say. People with mental illness are uniquely joined to Christ. Pope St. John Paul II said, Christ took all human suffering on himself, even mental illness. Yes, even this affliction, which perhaps seems the most absurd and incomprehensible, configures the sick person to Christ and gives them a share in his redeeming passion. This is very true. And I, I like the fact that Pope uh, John Paul has said that, um, where he said that mental illness is absurd and incomprehensible. At the end of the day, that's the truth. I don't understand it. I don't understand why we have to go through that. It's one of these things that we can say, well, why do we have to go through physical illness? We kind of understand that a little bit more because anybody who has been cut and their wound is healed understands that the body works in a way of healing. The body works in a way to take care of itself. We want to get rid of bacteria or infection and want to treat that. We understand that very well, very common for people. Um, but even then I find absurd, absurd in the sense that we're always looking for perfection. We want to be perfect. We want to be free from any illness, any ailment, any imperfection. And we have to understand that's not going to happen in this life, not in, not on this planet, not until we get to the resurrected state of heaven. That's really where our perfection is going to be. It's absurd. It's incomprehensible un as far as mental illness goes. This is true. I agree with uh, Pope St. John Paul II, but we might understand a little bit more when we make it to heaven. The article goes on to say, there are two saints, St. Demphna and St. John of God, that stand out because their legacies have inspired entire communities to value and accompany people who live with mental illness. Yes, these are our two patron saints, St. Demphna and St. John of God. St. Demphna is well known as a patron of people living with mental illness. She was a 7th century Irish princess who fled from her father, who seemed to have a mental illness, and she settled in Giel, Belgium where she cared for people with mental illness because she lived so long much of her story is shrouded i'm sorry because she lived so long ago much of her story is shrouded in the myths of legend so it is difficult to know with certainty much about divna herself however what is known with certainty is that saint divna's legacy inspired peoples uh, the people of gil to show compassion for people who live with mental illness over the centuries, the people of Gil invited people with a mental illness to live and work in their community without any stigma or discrimination. Throughout the Middle Ages and even today, the town of Gil is known as a model for the community acceptance of people who live with mental illness. Think about how hard that would have been long ago to have done. Obviously, for St. Dymphna, um, you know, a work of love, 
a work where she could understand mental illness and she showed compassion to it. In today's day and age, there's so much, so much stigma, even though we have much more knowledge, we understand treatment, and we seem to try to understand the human condition a little bit more. Think about back in the days of St. Dymphna, the 7th century, where mental illness was probably easily confused with demonic possession for sure, or confused with you know, some kind of an illness that was not going to get better, how much more would people have been shunned back then, you know, put on an island or a different part of town? And yet when St. Dymphna comes around, she says, hey, we got to show some compassion and converts a whole town's heart to allow people to work there and to live there without any stigma or discrimination. It's always inspiring to me, something to work towards uh, here in our own communities. Well, let's look at what the article has to say about St. John of God. It goes on to say the legacy of St. John of God continues to inspire people to provide good and compassionate medical care for people who live with mental illness. St. John of God lived in Spain in the 15th century, so obviously after St. Dymphna. In his midlife, his mental health deteriorated, and he was sent to Royal Hospital in Granada, Spain, a psychiatric facility. As was typical at that time, his care was harsh and inadequate. There you go. You know, back in the day, even now, um, well, I mean, actually, we do a lot of good job with mental illness nowadays. It's not harsh or inadequate. It's hard sometimes to control uh, the mental illness. We work with the uh, medication that we have and the treatments that we have. Uh, but back in the day, the treatment was harsh and inadequate. The article says, despite his mistreatment, over time, John recovered and he was able to visit with other patients and help the nurses in their care. He was released from the hospital uh, and John dedicated himself to help the poor, sick, and homeless who often live with a mental illness. Now think about how well he must have done uh, that he was actually released from the hospital. Back in the day, you ended up in a mental hospital and an asylum, as they used to call them. Uh, good luck getting out. It was very uncommon for somebody, once they entered, to actually leave. Sometimes because the medications were so harsh, probably made the person worse, but most of the time because there was no idea that anybody would get better uh, on their own or there was not necessarily an idea of trying to treat somebody so that they would get better. Usually they treated uh, patients to calm them down so they would, as we say, sometimes snow them or give them high doses of medication that would just kind of keep them sleepy. So this is what it goes on to say about St. John of God. He drew followers who were inspired by his holiness and compassion. Today, his followers are known as the Hospitalier Brothers of St. John of God. Uh, they continue his mission of caring for the poor and those with mental illness by operating hospitals and medical care facilities in over 50 countries. Now, the Association of Catholic Mental Health Ministries sees the legacies of St. Dymphna and St. John of God as models for mental health ministry. They provide free St. Dymphna and St. John of God prayer cards for those to use in mental health ministries. The bottom line of this is that we're not alone. If anybody uh, suffers from mental health, you know, out there, you're not alone. You got saints to look up to where the church is not going to abandon you or tell you that you cannot make it to God. And I don't want anybody to worry that just because they suffer from mental illness, all of a sudden they're going to turn into a criminal mind or go extremely. Take good support. Continue to follow the Catholic faith. As we know, use the sacraments, confession, communion, stay close to Christ, and you'll see with a good Catholic faith mental illness, Start to improve with less stress and getting your medication that is being provided to you and talk to your doctor and family.